And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome back to the latest edition of The Audible. I am Bruce Feldman, joined, as always, by Stuart Mandel. And, Stu, we're taping this early Wednesday afternoon. It's actually our second pod of the week. Uh, I am excited, and I know you are, too, because we're going to be joined by one of our favorite guests that we have and one of our favorite colleagues. And uh, who would that be? That's our good friend Petros Papadakis. And always a great day when we get a chance to talk to him and – Unfortunately for him, his alma mater, Jacob Ullman's alma mater, just keeps providing him, providing us with fodder to bring him back on. Yeah, never a dull moment around USC. So with without much more ado, let's get to our guest. All right, we're pleased to welcome back one of the most popular guests on the history of the Audible. I'm not kidding. I'm not exaggerating. We've gotten lots, <laughs> of, lots of requests for him. Petros Papadakis is back. And Petros, you know, you've got a sports talk radio show in L.A., and I feel like USC just keeps giving you material. Yeah, yeah, I wish it wasn't that way. Uh, This was pretty humiliating. Uh, This one got pretty ugly. I did expect a little bit closer of a game. But at the same time, you know, I had a conversation on, on the show with Max Brown, who's a great young man and a really good interview and different from uh, a lot of USC quarterbacks recently being from the state of Washington. And uh, he talked about how they were going to attack Alabama moving very quickly and spreading it out and not a lot of tight end or fullback action. And I just thought that was a terrible approach to taking on an Alabama team. Not that USC was going to win the game. I think it's pretty clear that, that they were overmatched, but they really didn't have anything to fall back on, uh, when their offense started getting stifled trying to get the ball to Juju Smith and they had no established run game and no lead blockers and it looked like their old lineman didn't really know how to run block at all. Uh, obviously facing a good defense, but you know, if that's the situation, your defense at some point in a game is going to break and, and that happened in a big way. And then all the stuff came out about Kiffin and his tweets and <laughs> we rehashed. It felt like 2013 all over again. And we're all talking about the tarmac at the Imperial terminal at LAX. And you're right. You know, there's a lot of material there. I mean, there's so much material there that we haven't even talked about the Sark thing yet on the show. We're probably going to do it. Today. We're going to get to that in a minute. Uh, <laughs> okay. So, so just having lived out in L.A. for like the last dozen years or so and you know, spent a bunch of time around USC folks, I felt like some of the most embarrassing losses they've had were that Halloween game at Oregon where they just got run off the field. Obviously, the what's your deal Stanford game. The yeah, Oscar I called game. that one. And and the, the game where they were, whatever, a 43-point favorite and lost to Stanford. But to me, this looked like they completely melted down. Like I, I don't, I didn't think they were going to win the game, but it wasn't even close. They like were embarrassed, and then they had 
you know, the Jabari Ruffin stomp, which was sure. at about as embarrassing as you could get. It's Clay Helton's now started out his career since Pat Hayden elevated him to being 0-3, and this was just humiliating. So for the diehards, and you know a lot of them, and you grew up as a, you know, in a USC family, is this the most embarrassing point that USC football's had in a long time? You know, I, I was racking my brain, Bruce, to be honest. And I met you, you know, that I met you when you were writing uh, for, I think, Sports Illustrated uh, during the glory days, during the glory days of the Pete Carroll era. Well, what's crazy you know? was I met, I, I think, I don't know if I met you at this point, but I remember the first time I went to your dad's restaurant, you guys sat me with, with Sam Cunningham. Oh, I, I remember, yeah, on table 16. Yeah, and this was yes. an awesome experience because he's, you know, it's like walking into history because he had this amazing, you know, story with your dad about when they went to to Alabama for that big game and there was a lot to it and all of a sudden this game happens and they don't even look they look like they are light years apart from what Alabama is, which is the top of college football right now. Well, and Alabama has an identity you know, Alabama knows what they want to do. They're established in what they want to do, and those guys have all played for pretty much, you know, the same head coach, or at least under the great infrastructure uh, of Nick Saban. And and that's kind of why guys like Lane Kiffin and and now uh, Steve, I guess, you know, fit there because it's kind of like going to the Patriots. You know, uh, it's such a great infrastructure that these guys who are good play callers, but maybe not great leaders of men or whatever you know, can exist. USC doesn't have any of that. I mean, USC came out looking like they were trying to be Western Kentucky on offense. And there was an old player that sent an email out that I, that I just received uh, that there was a great quote. He said, you know, USC came out looking like they were dogs uh, uh, wanting to be unchained. And, and when the chain came off, they ran under the porch. And <laughs> And that's really kind of what it looked like to me. I mean, they didn't stand up to Alabama at all. The Jabari Ruffin thing was not that I haven't punched a few guys in the balls in my day, you know, in action, you know. But uh, the Jabari Ruffin thing was about as, as as humiliating as you can get in a game where they were being embarrassed. And, you know, you had Juju Smith uh, throwing a tantrum at practice yesterday. There's photos of him. And walking over to the wall and sitting down with his arms folded. And we spent all camp lauding Clay Helton about what a great players coach he is and how much these guys love him. And uh, that, that, that storyline has changed to he's lost control of the program uh, very quickly. Uh, so well, that's what I, I wanted to ask you about because you've, you know, you, you know what it's like to be in practice and get frustrated and, you know, losing 52 to six is, is bad on its own, but you know, I guess it kind of raised my eyebrow yesterday when I saw that Juju Smith Schuster, the best player on the team, arguably him or Dory Jackson, you know, I assume one of the leaders of the team gets mad after a play and leaves the field, goes off and just kind of sits off to the side. They had to Kelton and T Martin had to go bring him back. And then in the same practice, he gets into a fight with one of the safeties and throws a couple punches and the Clay Helton spin afterward was, you want an angry team. You want a team that's angry. Is that really a good thing, or is he, you know, trying to spin what is? No, it's that you can't walk. You can't yeah. throw a tantrum and walk away. And and that none of that stuff happens in a vacuum. You know, the whole team sees that guy throwing a tantrum and acting the fool. And we had a similar situation like that. Uh, and you know, it's not very different. The last time USC was beaten so badly and only scored three points in a game. 
uh, I think was against Washington in 97, and, and I played in that game. Uh, we had John Robinson, and I don't think we crossed the 50, maybe once, because we got a turnover, but uh, we certainly could not produce at all offensively, and we got beat up. And I remember going to the locker room and thinking that we were going to be cussed out. And Robinson, because he had exploded on us after a bad loss on the road earlier in the year, all Robinson said was, we're not going to concentrate on this, get on the bus. And I remember just feeling like we had kind of given up, uh, everybody. And uh, I, I haven't seen it that bad since then. Uh, and and this is this is really bad. I, I think what Clay said was exactly like you said it is spin. And I just don't know where they go from here. And we've seen teams lose two games in a row. You know, I remember Virginia Tech lost twice. They were a really good team, and they lost to Boise State in the first game in a hard-fought battle, and then they lost to like. James Madison or something the next week because they were so shell shocked. You know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if Utah State doesn't punch USC in the jaw at 11 a.m. in a half full Coliseum on Saturday. Uh, I, I think they're in a very bad way. Petros, they, they've obviously, you have a first time head coach, you have these embarrassing losses. They also have the hardest schedule in the country that, that now they're just embarking on. A new AD that did not hire Clay Helton. Yeah. Uh, do you think this is going to get a lot worse before it gets better? Do you think there's ways he's going to be able to 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 right the ship? You don't want to overreact because it's only three games into his tenure and only one game into this season. But it's looking really shaky so far, obviously. I, I think we'd all agree that we all like Clay Helton. Yes. You know, uh, he's a great guy. And I really like Clay Helton. I mean, I I think he's a great guy. But uh, is he in over his head? Uh, Should he have been given the USC job? Pat Hayden, you guys were there that day, I think, very reluctant to even answer questions on the hiring. He he he, he left the room, basically. Yeah, he ran away, you know. Uh, I mean, Pat Hayden, the whole thing has just been a circus, you know. Why did he need to fire Lane Kiffin on a tarmac? You know, it's not that Lane Kiffin shouldn't have been fired. It was a pretty divisive atmosphere at USC uh, under Kiffin uh, by the time he was fired. But why did it have to happen to where he was humiliated like that uh, in an inhumane way at three in the morning to where the guy will hold a grudge hiding behind Nick Saban's bicep forever? You know, I mean, all that was created by Hayden and Hayden hired uh, Helton and then basically skulked off the job uh, because of a terrible controversy about a charity that that it seemed like he was in an unethical way uh, getting his family good money through. And you guys know that story through the L.A. Times. So all that stuff happened with Hayden and and then Helton emerged as this person everybody was kind of rooting for, but nobody really was sure what things were going to look like. And now that things look the way they look, on a national stage, I think USC people are shrugging their shoulders and saying, well, why didn't we hire Chris Peterson? You know, why did Pat Hayden say that Chris Peterson didn't interview well with USC? Look where he has Washington right now. Why isn't Tom Herman coaching at USC? You know, where are these? That's the crazy one to me, Petros, because, you know, Tom Herman, he said, oh, he only had one year. You know, they weren't, you know, going to go all in on that direction. It's a roll of the dice. Well, Clay Helton, they knew, but Clay Helton had, had less head coaching experience. He had to be in the interim twice, but what were you afraid you were going to lose him to be the Memphis head coach? So it was a gamble. Yeah, they got leveraged. Pat Hayden, the Rhodes Scholar, you know, I hate to be so negative, but my God, he got leveraged by Memphis. 
USC football is not supposed to be leveraged by Memphis. You know, if they wanted a guy like Herman, can you imagine how that guy would have interviewed? I don't even know if they talked to him. You know, go out and make a lock Pat Fitzgerald in a room and don't let him out until he accepts your millions and millions of dollars and ridiculous contract. I, you know, that's, I think, where USC people are the big shots you, you, you referred to. I think that's where they are at. You know, I think they're saying, why not? Why don't we have one of these great coaches? And maybe the truth is because their athletic directors aren't administrators. They're not getting hired by the uh, uh, Del Conte uh, guys, uh, you know, the guy from TCU, you know these people better than I do. They're not getting hired by those guys of the world if they're being hired by USC. They're being hired by, you know, ex-football heroes uh, with political aspirations. And it just, I think it's weird. Well, we can't go back in time, obviously, and, and change that hire. And like you said, we like Clay Halton. Hopefully he gets it turned around. If the, things kind of go south, though, uh, on this season – and what that would mean, I don't know, a six and six, maybe worse kind of season. What what happens with the pro, with the community there? Because like we know that they have their, you know, USC has their core diehard fans, but sure. that, that attendance in the Coliseum can fluctuate by, you know, thirty thousand people depending on whether they're doing well or not. And I've also That's been exactly curious, right. You know, I've been curious to know, and and we'll find out here soon enough how the Rams impact USC. Uh, there's a new team playing in the Coliseum every Sunday. Yeah, and it is a different fan base. You know, there's not, there's no uh, fist fight videos every week after USC games. You know, no matter how many people are in there, you know, there's a little unrest here and there. And we did have a stabbing at a late night game. Uh, I think back in 2011 or 12 uh, at the Rose Bowl, but. Uh, the, the pro football audience in L.A. is a lot different than the college football audience. And you guys have been around USC long enough to know that those diehard fans, they really are just people uh, in a social circle, a very big social circle. Uh, and that's how they socialize. They go to six or seven football games a year. They tailgate. They see everybody they went to college. With. My wife is uh, one of those people, you know, uh, and a lot of people that went to USC. I've never been to a USC tailgate because of the work I do. But uh, that's, you know, those those 50,000 people are always going to be there. But you're right. It becomes 80 or 90 when they're a good football team. And when they're not and it's 50, the coaches don't last very long at all. It can get even worse at UCLA with the Rose Bowl and how cavernous it is. If they lose a bunch of football games, you know, that's what got Bob Toledo fired is people just stopped buying tickets. Uh, what is the atmosphere going to be like? I think, I mean, almost on the brink of hopelessness because, you know, you can't, how many times can you do something over until it's dead? Uh, and I, I think USC football is never going to actually die. Uh, it'll, it'll be great again, and the city will open up in the way it did under Pete Carroll. Maybe never that intense again, but I, I do see it coming. But if you guys think about it, I mean, you've had guys that have been recruited by Kiffin on this team that saw him fired the way he was, Ogeron takeover. They all fell in love with him. Saw him uh, dispatched the way he was. Uh, Helton, and, and then Sark, and then that whole horrible situation, and then back to Helton, and then Pat Hayden humiliated and leaves. I mean, I just don't. I, I just don't know where they go from here, guys. I, I I got no answers. I want to shift gears a little bit, Petros. So you have a popular LA radio show. Obviously, Steve. Thank Sarkis, you. you know, yes. 
it's, it's, it goes without saying almost. Steve Sarkeesian <laughs> was a was a hot topic in in L.A. for a while, for the last couple of years, certainly with his departure at USC and the way it went down. Uh, and then you're working with him. You're his broadcast colleague. So how awkward, how awkward was that going to be? And how, and, um, <laughs> how relieved are you now that it's not actually going to come to fruition? Yeah. Uh, you know, I was, uh, when they told me I was, I mean, obviously taken aback a little bit, but I mean, over the years I've had to work in like you guys, you know, with and around a lot of people that, you know, uh, that I've not said kind things about over the years. And I've known Steve Sarkeesian, you know, since I was in high school. So, uh, I was looking forward to it. And, you know, I spent most of the summer thinking about, you know, how I was going to help him, uh, become a good broadcaster and, and, uh, you know, enjoy the experience and celebrate him on the air and, you know, do my job basically. Uh, but (laughs) I had one conversation with him. I helped him book his travel and I told him, you know, the background of everybody on the crew and what I knew about, you know, everybody and, you know, how we were, you know, what the basic, uh, because it's much different than the football world, you know, but what, you know, what our procedure is to do a game, you know, what the schedule's like and all that. Just, we had a logistical conversation. It was very nice. And I told him I look forward to working with him. He was very polite and all that. And uh, on Friday, midday, I got an email uh, from our bosses that said, uh, I'm going to be doing the game alone on Saturday. And, uh, you know, we'll figure out the rest of the schedule. But, uh and then I started seeing the reports that everybody had that Sark had been uh, contacted by Alabama or was going to interview with him. And, uh, and then I thought, well, I don't think he got contacted. I think he got hired because <laughs> he's not, he's not going to work with us. Uh, and I was happy for him, uh, obviously. Uh, the timing of it seemed a little interesting to me, and I'm not a conspiracy, conspiracy theorist, nor do I care, and I'm, I'm happy for Steve. But uh, I don't. most guys don't get hired you know, while the team in Tuscaloosa, while the team is in uh, Texas, and you guys know about coaching movement and hires and interviews a lot better than I do, but I, 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 he might have had something going on without, maybe had something going on with Alabama before the weekend started. <laughs> and, you think? Uh, probably a bad oh, look. Shocker! They're playing. Yeah, the I don't know, guys, but it was probably a bad look for Alabama to hire the USC head coach uh, as an analyst right before they play USC. Uh, even Saban, a cutthroat guy, understands that. So they hired him right after they humiliated USC. So I, you know, and and God bless him and whatever, you know, he was going to do a handful of games and we were going to have a good time, I'm sure. But I'm not sure Steve was, was ever intending to to grab that Fox Mike flag this year. Maybe I'm wrong, but uh, uh, I don't know. And the game I guys were... it, uh, I, at some point he might have, but uh, he might he, he might he might have talked to Alabama before they flew out to Dallas. So, and we should say the game you're doing this weekend. The game it was going to be a three man booth. Uh, it's uh, Central Michigan Oklahoma State. Yeah, on FS1. Uh, so just got off the phone with the Central Michigan coach Great John guy. Bonamego. Yeah. yeah I, what a what a I, all three people the coordinators and and coach I couldn't believe what good honest uh just straight up great guys I mean it's awful hard to get a guy's personality through a conference call and to kind of understand him as a coach but man was I impressed with these guys so I'm lo- I'm looking really looking forward to seeing them now 
Petro, well, uh, Petro, she got to meet Bonamigo's wife. She is she's an all time character. You and her would hit it off great. I think I wrote her name down. Hold on, let me flip over my board. Here it is, Paulette. Paulette, yeah, yeah, she's, <laughs> she's full of life. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm looking. I'm looking forward to it. And you know, guys, I, I enjoy working with all kinds of different people. So I was looking forward, really looking forward, actually, to working with Sark because he, he's a good football man. He's a great play caller, and I have never got to do a three man booth with a coach. You know, I did some shows with Harbaugh, uh, uh, but they were like studio shows, and and uh, with uh, Coach Barnett. So I was looking forward to it, but I'm really ha- I know he wanted to get back into coaching as soon as possible, and I'm happy for him. When I heard that he got a job, I thought it was like at the College of the Mines, you know, in Colorado. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out it's at the best uh, football well, program in the in the world. And that's a great point. When he, when when he got fired last year, I mean, he couldn't have been at a lower low. He, he's pretty much humiliated, uh, you know, in kind of the way showing up, you know drunk to practice and hung over whatever you know like it was a it was about as ugly an ending as it gets and at that time i remember we were on this podcast speculating well gosh is he going to be able to get back into coaching at some point if he does i can't imagine a college is going to hire him as a head coach so what you know what, what how low a job would he be willing to go etc well you know i don't know an analyst job at alabama maybe pays forty thousand dollars a year you're you're theoretically a gopher but i gotta think this is about as ideal landing spot as he could find right he's going to the you know the the model for coaching in college football right now program working with his old buddy kiffin and we talked about this the other day if as many expect kiffin gets a head coaching job this season he would seemingly be in a position to maybe even be the oc next year yeah uh, and you're right you know i I mean uh i don't know the whole kiffin getting a head job again uh after being fired twice in september which is very difficult to do (laughs) is hard for me to process but i had a really hard time believing that alabama was going to hire him you know even though the him and saban share an agent uh but here's what's been proven you know it's been proven that there's uh, some problems if sark or kiffin are head head coaches uh, without a doubt, at big programs. I mean, that cannot be argued. Uh, but it's also been proven that in the infrastructure of a great coach like Saban or Pete Carroll, these guys are really good offensive developers and play callers, and they always have been. And I remember really being impressed with Steve Sarkeesian just changing Carson Palmer's on-field approach to football through Norm Chow in the booth, of course, but it was just so interesting because Sark had played quarterback for Norm at BYU and then listening to Norm communicate with Sark on the sideline and Sark look in Carson's eyes and communicate there, you know, and then on to liner, uh, and, and, you know, throughout the years at USC, it was always really impressive. So I think Saban's brilliant because look, he doesn't let these guys talk. I mean, Kiffin talks twice a year and two times a year, makes controversies when he does it. And, you know, this is kind of the perfect place for both of them, if you really think about it. It's almost like, you know, Belichick bringing in Ocho Cinco, you know, and, you know, or those kind of situations where you say, well, that place can absorb whatever controversy this guy brings along. And that's what's happened at Alabama. And it's really impressive. Uh, and I'm happy for Steve. You know, I, 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 he's a really good play caller. I always thought so. So, and a really good recruiter too, you know, both of them are. So I, I can understand why they're hired there. It's, it's, it is hard to imagine after being on ground zero of the SC stuff 
that the negatives don't outweigh the positives, but they, they apparently they don't in Tuscaloosa. All right, Petros. Well, it's always a pleasure to have you on. Uh, I think. Uh, Did I do okay? I didn't tell you guys about any murders or OJ <laughs> or anything. <laughs> no, uh, we knew this would be a much different kind of interview than the the OJ one. That's fine. I uh, had my Sark conspiracy. That's pretty good, right? You could play the Law and Order piano. Well, and dun, next dun. time, you know, if we had a little more time, we'd have you give us a full Central Michigan scouting report. But as it is, oh, dude, Cooper Rush. Let me tell you, kid out of Charlotte, Michigan. Lansing Catholic, he sure is. 6'3", 230, invaluable experience. As Sorry. it is, people should tune in to uh, FS1 <laughs> at noon Eastern on uh, Saturday. Um, I mean, Mason Rudolph's one, you know, being billed as one of the top NFL prospects in this quarterback class. So Yeah, he got, he got a great receiver in James Washington. Let's not forget, guys, that, that Oklahoma State was all the way up to number four last year before I think Bedlam kind of took the, the winds out of their sails. But uh, this, is, this is a pretty good-looking football team that Mike Gundy has. And, it, I mean, it, the first weekend of college football is over, and it feels like the, the season's over. I mean, it was, it was a marathon. It was. It was the longest week, but it was a lot of fun. <laughs> All right, we'll get some Eskimo Joes while you're in town, while you're in Stillwater. What's that? I've never been. Oh, my gosh. I can't believe I've never it. been to Stillwater. Well, that makes sense, actually. Eskimo Joe's is pretty much the staple. Like, you know, every campus has their one. Uh, you have to go to this place. and Eskimo Like cheeseburgers or, or yeah, that, burritos? Or... Where it's, it, <laughs> I remember a lot of cheese. Cheese fries is a big one there. Just a lot of, like, oh, stuff with cheese on it. But it Do they is, serve beer? They serve beer, of course. It is their, it is their place. I mean, I, I've, you know, you'll see pictures of famous people wearing Eskimo Joe's T-shirts and whatnot. So... Um, and if they, you want me to pick you up one, if they're listening, if the people that are listening, please, uh, you know, uh, show show Petros the town, um, what there is to see of it uh, in Stillwater, and have a great game. Okay, as we said, Petros always delivers never a dull moment with Petros or at USC. Uh, Stu, so there was a little bit of news, not huge news, but just. Some news out of the Big Ten. A, uh, one of your favorite coaches, Kirk Ferentz, his potential, quote, retirement contract was made official on Tuesday. The University of Iowa announced an extension for him through the 2025 season. The deal will pay Ferentz $4.5 million yearly in total compensation. It will expire uh, in January of 2026. But it's... But it's not the contract. It's not the oh, I know. length of the contract or the salary that really stand out to you because he just went to the Rose Bowl. Of course, he's going to get an extension. That buyout, man, Iowa it has basically said he will be the coach for the next 10 years come hell or high water. Good move, bad move for the Hawkeyes. What do you think? So let me just begin by saying that I don't think Kirk Ferentz is one of the worst coaches. That was four years ago. We're over that. There you go. <laughs> he, he, Do you regret he, that? No, because at the time he was he was the program. People forget like that program went into quite a valley for a few years there, and then and I would say even before. Can I give, before, can I give you a lifeline here on this, Stu? Yeah. Maybe you had said most overpaid coaches as opposed to worst coaches. Would that have been more apt? It was just I'd done worse coaches before. It was worse coaches now. They weren't ranked. It was just five names. And it would have been, you know, you're not going to do it and then be like start picking out Mac coaches. I mean, you're going to put coaches on there that people care about. 
You four, want four of the five other coaches got fired shortly thereafter. Kirk has a, a, a lot more lives. Uh, here's the deal. He had this enormous buyout uh, ever since the 2000s. Basically, anytime he goes to a BCS Bowl, he gets a 10-year contract and a massive buyout. And it became a real sore spot with Iowa fans because a lot of them were fed up and wanted to make a change, and you just couldn't because it was so expensive. Well, as expensive as that was, this new one is even worse. I've never seen anything like it. So let me just explain. $4.5 million a year for 10 years. Now, you know, oftentimes coaches' contracts include a buyout for a smaller amount than that um, to get out of the contract early without cause. Sometimes contracts don't have any buyout, and you do owe the full amount, but this is a 10-year contract, not a 5-year contract. Well, they have worded this in a way where he uh, – for the so there's a set percentage for the first five years. It's 75% at first and then 100% of his remaining salary. Well – you know, that total contract is $45 million, so clearly they're not going to fire him in year one, two, three, anytime soon. It would just be an absurd amount of money. But here's the crazy part. For each season in the first five years that he wins seven games, it ups one of six through ten to 100%. So he could literally go seven and six for the next five years, and he would be guaranteed the full amount for the entire ten years. You tell me, do you think... I mean, I understand wanting to reward loyalty and all the all he's accomplished there. He will soon be the winningest coach of all time. But what if the program does fall on hard times? What if they go three and nine several years in a row? There's nothing they can do about it. Well, then it's their fault. You know, I don't think he's I, – I, I actually think he's a good coach. I, I, I do. And, you know, again, when it comes back to some of these money decisions, I mean – this isn't the Charlie Weiss contract. Let's put it that way. I mean, this guy's a proven commodity. Uh, I'm not trying to justify the money because I, I hear where you're coming from. Um, if you were an Iowa fan, would you be uncomfortable with this? I would be horrified. Now, Iowa fans at this point, you know, Kirk Ferentz is extremely popular again, and I don't blame him. And you're optimistic. You think you're going to go back to, uh, you know, a New Year's Six Bowl this year. It's certainly possible. But I just – it would make me nervous to have to lock yourself in for that long. Uh, yeah. By the way, the, Nick he, Saban doesn't have a ten-year contract. By the way, when he uh, when he was kind of rolling along, he did have three back-to-back top eight finishes. You know where they won eleven, ten, and ten. Um, but the the part that I think is noteworthy here is you go back in the last eleven years, they've only had three top twenty-five finishes. Now obviously last year they had a great year. They finished tenth or ninth, depending on how you look at it. But there was a you know a, a stretch where I think before last year, I think they were under five hundred in Big Ten play for the previous five years. Which is how he ended up on that list. Look, he's averaged about seven wins a season for his career. And this contract, by putting that specific number in there of seven wins Iowa is basically saying that that is their measure of success. Just get us to seven wins every year, and we'll keep paying you $4.5 million a year. Doesn't that seem to be just a a, a, a bizarre acceptance of mediocrity? Well, I'm curious. I don't know if I would call that acceptance of mediocrity. What I am curious about is – you know, what what gets leveraged here? You know, Petros had mentioned getting leverage, USC getting leveraged by Memphis. 
you know, this is a guy with NFL ties, but I couldn't see Kirk Ferentz, show, you know, getting hired away from Iowa someplace else who would pay him. Yeah, I don't think he's going anywhere. Now, earlier in his tenure, that time you talked about, which was 10 to 12 years ago, he was constantly being rumored for NFL jobs. There was a legitimate concern that you were going to lose him, although they never did. I, he's in his mid-60s. I don't think he's going to get suddenly hired away by an NFL team. No, I you know, that's the part that I wondered about with that deal, but... Uh... You know, who knows? Maybe this is the year that he will lead them to the playoff. Oh, it may be. And again, I think they're going to be very good this year. I just worry for them in 2022 if, if uh, you know, he, recruiting tails off and they're going to a tailspin and they can't do anything about it. Yeah. Yeah, we'll, we'll see how it plays out. Um, okay. You want to get to the mailbag? <clears throat> Let's get to the mailbag. As always, you can send your emails to... The Audible Pod at gmail.com. Uh, let's start with this one from. Um, you should probably ask me that one. Okay. Stuart and Bruce, I know you guys have talked a lot of. Hey, before I get to this, do you do you not like being called Stu? Um, you know, it's it's it, funny. People ask me that. Like, it basically, where the way it's become, the demarcation has been that my family calls me Stuart. And professionally, I go by Stuart, and everybody else calls me Stu. Uh, I don't mind either way. Like I don't, I don't care either way. Although I do, I have caught my wife a couple times. That I, I think she should call me by my name. And do you get pissed off when wants that and the other Fox folks call you Stewie? For some reason, it sounds like almost. I can't imagine it coming out any other way from Wanstead. Um Other people saying it, not so great. Okay. Uh, it's weird. I've known you for a long time. I've never even thought to ask you that. So, uh, all right. Anyway, you never know what'll come up on this podcast. Yeah. Usually, hopefully it'll be more interesting than that. Um, I know you guys have talked a lot about UH and its possibilities of getting into the big 12. Should they choose to expand? Not sure if you saw, but I read that university of Houston versus Oklahoma game drew a 12.8 rating in Houston compared to the highest rated game last year in Houston, which was an 8.5. Alabama versus A&M. Seeing that and the UH fan fan support at the game, I would think this would increase would further increase the chances of UH getting into the Big 12. I know the decision may not be logical by the Big 12, but seeing these type of numbers should equate to more money, which is really what this is all about. Your thoughts? Right. So, you know, as I said the other day, you can't try to use logic to figure these things out. I don't think logic will ultimately be what decides who gets invited into the Big 12, if any. But I will say that stat he just read about the TV rating, that is huge because that is one of the things that I think, frankly, will end up... That that alone could end up carrying more weight than the fact that Houston won the football game because what do they want? TV viewers. And, you know, I think that traditionally that city was a Big 12 city, a Texas Big 12 city. Then it started to shift to being more of an A&M uh, SEC city. But, yeah, the fact that that many people tune in to watch the home team certainly speaks well. Uh, they're not going to tune into those numbers uh, to watch Lamar, watch them play Lamar or watch them play American Athletic Conference teams. But I think you could safely assume that if they're playing Oklahoma in a conference game every year, if they're playing Texas, if they're playing any number of teams, they're going to rate pretty well. So I, I think that that helps 
Um, I don't think that sways it one way or the other, as we've talked about before. In fact, you seem to believe that they're in pretty good shape, but we've talked before that, you know, all it would take is three schools from outside the state of Texas to say, um, we don't want to have to recruit against them in the city of Houston. Yeah, it's fair. I mean, not fair, but it's, it's a valid concern. Next. Um, all right. I just pulled this one up. It's, uh, from Matt in Newtown, Massachusetts. Stu and Bruce, I'm a BC fan who has had it with Steve Adazio. 600 days between conference wins will do that. One of the criteria that has shown me that he simply isn't going to succeed as head coach is that he's 5-11 and in games decided by 7 points or less and an atrocious 2-10 in in games decided by a field goal or less. My questions to you are A, what are your thoughts on Adazio's job at BC? And B, are there any stats beyond wins and losses that you, lack, that you look at when evaluating coaches? Uh, I don't think he's going to get fired this year, even if he goes, you know, five and seven and you look at their schedule, by the way, BC arguably has the easiest non-conference schedule of anybody in college football. I mean, it's, it's cushy as could be. I mean, I'm not saying it's four lock wins, but if you're a pretty good team, you should win those four games. And then it's not that it shouldn't be that hard to get them to a bowl game, but you know, Matt's right. I mean, this is, they were absolutely awful, especially when you consider, they had one of the better defenses, statistically the best defense, or one of the best defenses in the country under Don Brown. You know, they had a bunch of injuries on offense. Okay, so we'll give him a pass. He hired Scott Leffler to take over the offense. I don't think you like that hire, did you, Stu? Of course not. Okay. Although I will say their offense was at least a little bit better in this first game uh, against Georgia Tech than it was last season. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think he's... Because he, I know he has a bunch of support there. Unless he goes three and eight, three and nine, and they lose, you know, every game in the uh, in the ACC, then I think that would force their hands. But if he's around five hundred again, I just don't see BC as the place to make that move. I mean, it had gotten really messy on some staff issues on the previous staff. Um, you know, look, Adazio had a took over for Al Golden at Temple. Had a good first year, had a really bad second year. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what to. You know, if I was a BC fan, I'm not sure. I think this was like, oh, he's going to get us back to where it was under Jack Bicknell. I don't. I don't feel that way about Steve Adazio as a head coach there. But um, you know, I. So I just, you said you don't think he'll be fired, but it sounds like his actual question. Do you think basically you think he's a good coach? You don't think so. I don't. I don't think he's a great head coach now. I mean, do he you? went. Uh, he went seven and six each of his first two seasons with losses in bowl games. He's eight and seventeen in conference, conference. play. Yeah, you know it's weird. I I really thought he was a good fit there. I thought his personality fit well. I thought the uh, the, the the approach to be just a really physical run team with a good offensive line made a lot of sense. But it's gone backwards. There's no question about that. The thing about the close game stat, I actually looked into this a little bit. Um, because just so you, you know, Matt, the question almost made it into my print email. Um, oh, so we get the leftovers basically. Is this how, is this how it works still? It just feels like it's easier to, there's just some things that are easier to explain, um, or, or have a conversation about. I feel good about this. I get the crap and you get the good questions and you, you, you hoard them. Well, you know, you could change, you could check the inbox, you know, once, once every three months, steal some of the questions for yourself. As it is, I'm always the one checking the emails. Wow. So this is what it comes to, huh? All I was going to say is the analytics crowd generally considers 
close games to be, you know, record in close games to be a bit of luck, but not necessarily over as long a period of time as we're talking about. I know he was taking a lot of heat for um, some of his strategic decisions in the Georgia Tech game, like kicking a field goal on a fourth and one from the 18. Um, but to be this far down, to have that low a record for that long says that he's not basically it kind of means he's not getting the most out of his team because you should basically be around 500 in close games uh yeah i don't know i mean bc's gone through a lot of instability there i mean the whole i feel like the whole thing where the ad fired jeff jagadinsky for just for interviewing for an nfl job set that program back years very true yeah man that's a blast from the past i keep waiting to see some you know like long form story on the, the career path of jeff jagadinsky sure Corey from Alabama. Okay, I know it's early, and the polls are just basically for stories at this point. But why is Tennessee getting punished so much for barely beating a decent FBS program that went 11-2 and last year and returned 17 starters, while Michigan State has basically been given a pass for struggling with an FCS team that went 4-7 and in 2015? Can I start on this one? Sure. It is because there is much more benefit of the doubt— for Mark D'Antonio's program that just played in the playoff and has and has been really a powerhouse in the Big Ten, you know, in recent years, whereas Tennessee for the past decade has been spinning its wheels and there's still a little bit of the 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 jury is out on the Tennessee Vols offense at this point. That's my theory. There is some truth to that. Also, I would just say that I wouldn't compare the two as being remotely similar. I mean, Michigan State ended up winning by a pretty comfortable margin. Uh, Tennessee went to overtime and and needed a. But he's right. Tennessee played a very good team. They did. I I don't know why App State's not getting any credit for this. And I will say that this AP poll was one of the stranger I've ever seen. It seems like there's been a huge shift in. I don't know if they've just changed enough voters or, you know, three years in the playoff now. In general, I think it's a good thing for the polls to be more. Um, volatile from week to week for them not to be afraid to move teams around quite a bit Mm -hmm. but there were some really strange ones in this most notably uh texas debuts all the way up at number 11 in the ap poll they are number 20 in the coaches poll uh tennessee i expected to drop a few spots but not eight spots for a game that they won Notre Dame dropped eight spots for losing in double overtime on the road uh, at night on a Sunday night to Texas. LSU, 16-spot drop. Uh, let's just put it this way. I've been high on Texas all offseason. I think they're going to be a lot better. I think that's absurd <laughs> to suggest that they're already the number 11 team in the country. Well, everything at this point is just kind of take it with a grain of salt, still. And Tennessee... Maybe they are only the 17th best. Maybe they're not even that good. But, you know, teams have close calls sometimes. Teams don't always blow out everybody they play uh, in the early part of the season. Sometimes you need a week. Well, we'll find out this week. They play Virginia Tech. Do you think – what chance do you you give Virginia Tech to pull the upset in that one? Uh, 30% chance. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people will look at what happened last week and say, well, wow, you know, maybe Tennessee's not as good as I thought. This is a chance. This Look, is a good I, spot for Virginia Tech, but we didn't learn anything about Virginia Tech from playing an FCS team in Week One, and I just, I just think Tennessee will bounce back. 
I know you think Virginia Tech is garbage this year, man. I don't know about garbage, but uh, you know, you, unless you, Justin Fuente has worked a a offensive miracle over the course of the off season, I just can't imagine that offense is in a good enough shape to move the ball well against what anybody can agree is a really, really talented Tennessee defense. Don't underestimate Virginia Tech's receivers. They are very big and athletic. I, I agree, but you're the one who just gave them a 30% chance to win. Well, 30% chance is pretty good. 50% chance, 51% chance means they should be the favorite. Matthew in Brooklyn says, I'm not trying to be a big downer here, but after watching the big games this weekend, I couldn't help but wish that the lineup, that, that had been the lineup for week three. Every team plays a couple of soft non-conference games, so why not get them out of the way in weeks one and two and allow teams to be fully up to speed by the time the big non-conference matchups roll around? I could not disagree more. What about you? Yeah, I, look, I, I mean, it gives us something to look forward to in the beginning of the season. I would love it, ideally, if these games were more spread out. Um, so then, you know, there's always that window. I I would have had no problem with uh, Texas A&M and UCLA or Georgia and North Carolina maybe being in different places just because I wanted to watch everything and not have to say to Brando, hey, Tim, go back, you know, <laughs> constantly in his party suite. That was frustrating. I felt like I was nagging him. So I can't you know. believe he, he wanted to watch anything other than the LSU game. Uh, you know, he was actually pretty – pretty good sport about about working the remote so that texas a&m ucla game had a, a surprisingly low tv rating which for a game that went into overtime and was the main cbs game i don't know what that means exactly but yeah it was a little crowded on saturday there's no question about that it's a good problem to have but here's why i, I this ended up you know we all went into it going this is gonna be really exciting and it was but it ended up having a couple more benefits i hadn't really anticipated going in the main one being just learned a lot more about these teams than i would have if well i mean case in point well i'll give you here's what i'm here's what i'm getting at so we put out our new heisman top fives on i guess that was monday night and i didn't really think about this ahead of time i did not have jt barrett in there jt barrett threw six touchdowns uh jt barrett may well win the heisman i like jt barrett but I wasn't going to put him in for throwing six touchdowns against Bowling Green when all five of the guys I had in there, um, Nick Chubb, Christian McCaffrey, Deshaun Watson, uh, who am I forgetting here, Greg Ward, and Dalvin Cook, all played good Power 5 teams. And so, like, I learned something about them and their teams in Week 1 much more than I did, you know, from Michigan, Hawaii, or any number of these, you know, versus FCS teams. I know they have to play them, but, yeah, I mean, you, you, you get a great chance to make a great first impression. Texas is number 11 in the polls already. They wouldn't be if they'd saved that for week three. And week three has some good games, right? I it mean, does. Week two this lost. week is, is, the, uh, is the downer for sure. Um, you're basically looking at Arkansas, TCU, Tennessee, Virginia Tech, Pitt, Penn State. Uh, SMU, Baylor. Yeah, of course. That's how could I forget SMU Baylor? But uh, you know, something will happen. It'll be. Hey, I think you know what I think. I was telling this to Clat. I don't know how he felt about it, but like, Clat's game is a is a good one. Oh, it's, the Holy War. Yeah, they don't. I don't think they liked calling it the Holy Water. Holy War, by the way. Um, BYU and Utah. But our other game, and I'm not trying to show for this, but I'm I would very interested to see ASU Texas Tech. 
Yeah, yeah that's a good one. Pat Mahomes, I think, against he's gonna... a wild defense that does a lot of unconventional yeah. stuff. I, I don't have. That... I would say ASU is a team more than almost any other Power Five team that I I didn't have any idea what to expect from them coming into the year, and then they played Northern Arizona, so I still don't. So it'll be interesting to see them play against a Texas Tech team that, you know, I think Pat Mahomes is great and they could do any number of them, but they've been terrible on defense. And so if the new ASU quarterback, Manny Wilkins, is pretty good, um, if Todd Graham's got a good thing going on on offense, then this is a chance for them to showcase that. Yeah. Well, BYU-Utah, in all fairness, is going to be a really good game. I watched quite a bit of the uh, late BYU-Arizona game, and I was really – I, w- I was surprised on both ends. I was surprised that they were able to hold Arizona to 16 points. Obviously, they must have a pretty good defense. And then I, given Arizona's recent history on defense, I was really surprised that, that they only scored 18 points with Taysom Hill and Jamal Williams, you know, some good yeah. pieces on offense. So uh, Utah has a new quarterback. Sorry, I didn't mean to get into a huge uh, BYU-Utah breakdown here, but it is our big game this week. Uh, Utah's got a new dual-threat quarterback who is a little different than what they've had there. They didn't run the ball very well in their first game. And they're really good on defense. Quarterback Troy Williams from Washington. That's right. Troy Williams from Washington via Juco. Utah's defense has a chance to be, though, pretty darn good. So uh, we will see. It could be another 18-16 type of game. Um, Our last one here from... Okay, so this is from a guy named Matt Moran in Austin. Yeah, we have like three Matts in this, by the way. No, I didn't even think about that, but this is going to be quite the random for you. But I'm going to guess this is not the same Matt Moran who is a uh, freshman basketball player at Northwestern when I was on the beat as a student and quit like nine games or eight games into the season and went back home and was never heard from again. If that is you, Matt, I apologize for describing you in that way. Um, now he's in Austin, Texas, and he wants to get our take on, yeah, this was kind of a uh, controversial moment in the weekend. wants to get our take on the targeting rule. Uh, you saw the hit on Torrey Hunter Jr. in the, uh, Texas Notre Dame game, and the ACC came out the next day and said that they, well, I can't say that the ACC did. Somebody told Brian, Brian Kelly said that the ACC told him that that should have been called a targeting the Big 12, as far as I know, they were, it was a Big 12 crew, has not come out and said anything. And this was controversial because it seemed crystal clear that it should have been called targeting. And this year, for the first time, the replay booth can instigate a targeting call, even if it wasn't called on the field. So he asks, when officials from conference to con- oh, is this the type of thing only the NCAA could screw up? When officials from conference to conference cannot agree on the application of a rule that summarily disqualifies a player from the game, a rule that is, there's a fancy word for you, preponderantly misapplied across the sport. Shouldn't this be simplified to a 15-yard helmet-to-helmet with in-week review to determine any possible malicious intent? Well, the ejection part, I think, is to make it be a much toothier penalty because they are really trying to make safety more of a priority in the game. Whether you agree with that or not, that's where they're going with that. Uh, you know, getting back to, to Matt's original part about the, the, the call itself, I was surprised that they didn't overturn it. Now I get, you know, these things happen fast. And in that case, you know, the Tory Hunter's body was changing, but, but in the direction it was going in, but still the way they've written, the way they've put the rule in now, 
there really isn't that much wiggle room on it, I don't think. And that's what surprised me on why I was like, well, this seems like it's now the definition of what they want tar- what, what they want to identify targeting. Yeah. yeah, usually people on Twitter complain when there is a targeting call and a guy gets ejected and they don't feel like it should have been called that. And, you know, the sport's turning into a bunch of wusses and da 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 This was a rare moment where people were furious that they didn't call targeting. You know, the rule, they just keep tweaking it every year. You remember the first year, which was so stupid is that even if the replay overturned the targeting, you still yeah. got the 15-yard penalty. <laughs> that was pretty stupid. Uh, they got rid of that, but you could still get ejected. And, and and now this thing with the replay being able to initiate it. You know, it's a tough thing all around. It is very, I don't blame the ref for not calling it on the spot. It is, these plays happen so fast. Right. Like I think you could be standing right there and have no idea whether it was targeting or not. So then that's why they changed this rule this year because – you know, before it, they had to have called it on the field for somebody up upstairs to overturn it. If they didn't call it on the field, there was no way to then say, well, it was targeting. So now you have that mechanism, but the crew that night had the chance to use it and didn't use it. I've always heard that. I, I think that might be a problem because, you know, there's this, I mean, refs, the, the, ref, the officiating community, people are very tight. They, you know, know how hard a job it is for each other. And they don't want to embarrass anybody. And I think a, a former referee who's sitting in that booth is going to feel that's really, bad. really that's, hesitant to the job. Then that's well, I agree, but I'm telling you, that's the mentality out there. Going to feel really hesitant to tell a guy in the field, "You should have called this. I'm going to call it for you." Well, the, one of the concerns I had heard when replay really first came in, this I remember being down in Mississippi working on the recruiting book, so it's ten years ago, was this kind of thing will make the officials more passive and put a thought process in their head that doesn't need to be there. And I was surprised that coaches would feel that way. But because I thought ever since I was a little kid, I thought replay was just the right way to go for you have the technology. It can make you, you know, it can save you calls that would be gotten wrong. But, you know, we still see they still what I think blow quite a few calls. Now, maybe it's not a high percentage. You know, we only remember the ones they tend they seem to get wrong. And nobody- I also think they should do a better job publicized because I've been, you know, we always hear people say, oh, this targeting rule is the worst rule in the history of the world. Why do they have it in there? Because it actually has worked. You know, it has, they have this, the stats and the research to show that it has cut down on the, those number of, and it's not just helmet to helmet. And I think people get confused on that too. I mean, it's leading with any part of your upper body uh, into a guy's head. Um that these hits have been cut down, but I don't see them publicized that in any way. So how would anybody know that? Just like how, uh, just like most people don't know what it, what the rule is when they're watching it. You know, no matter how many times people explain it, it's uh, it's become the bane of our existence. Frankly, it's become the college equivalent of NFL fans complaining that nobody knows what catches. Uh, okay. So we have a Facebook Live show this Saturday again. Yes, we do. Uh, the Audible on Facebook Live continues again this weekend i'll be back in la Kristen balboni will host you are going to be doing the baylor smu game that kicks off at 3 30 eastern correct that is correct good one Stu. so you will not be able to join us i would assume for the one that we do in that window right after the 3 30 eastern games end and we may change it up this week we're still experimenting with what are the best times to go live Last week we did one right after the 3.30 p.m. Eastern games ended. We did one at halftime of the USC-Alabama game that actually did really well. And then we did one, the one we always anticipated would be the end of the night one. But it was pretty late at that point after uh, Clemson-Auburn. 
I really hope you guys will join us if you can because it really is, I mean, the target audience is people who listen to this podcast, but we also realize you're not sitting on Facebook on Saturday night. So just, but you all have Facebook accounts, whether you'll admit it or not. So you just, all you got to do is go to the, the Facebook page, CFB on Fox and like the page, and then you're going to get notifications when we go live. Um, you also see us tweet out the links as well. And it's basically the conversation. It's a, it's a preview of the conversation we're going to have on Monday, I would say is a good way to describe it. Yes, except Kristen interrupts. Kristen is going to, and I told you this during the show, I feel like she's be, she's going to become the almost like the referee because we're already going back and forth at each other about who is right and who is wrong. And I can already tell that the dynamic is going to be that we're both going to try to argue to get her to be on our side. Yeah, we've given up on Teddy. So Yeah, exactly. You can send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. And as always, if you enjoy The Audible, Please subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, and please tell your friends. We'll see you next time. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.